I got to say, it's great to see everybody here in one room together. Um, I'm really praising God this morning for everybody who's here. Thank you so much for coming to worship with us today. And let me ask you a question. If you were to ask, if you were to be able to go to a seminary for one day, a seminary is one of those places where pastors like me go to get trained. If you were to go there for one day and you could ask one single question, what would it be? I think I asked it for you. And I'm going to give you the answer. What is the single most important thing that you could possibly learn in seminary? I remember back in the very beginning of my training to become a pastor. My wife and I, we just quit our jobs in Maryland, and we hopped in a car. We moved to Dallas, Texas. And we're there. We're in Dallas, Texas. Every seminary student gets put into this small group. And uh, our small group was actually led at the time by a couple of missionaries our church was supporting, you know, Abraham and Laura Joseph. Uh, Abraham and Laura Joseph were leading this small group of seminary students. They had a pastor come in and was there to answer our questions. Am I, am I on? I think I'm good. Okay, I'm good. Yeah, we had a pastor that was there to answer all our questions. He had already been through the training process. So I wanted to know, in your estimation, what is the single most important truth? That someone, oh, there we go. You, you got me now. What is the single most important truth that you believe someone should walk away with from this school? And he paused. He looked down. Then he raised his eyes. And he said that, a God, that the gospel has a power that's all its own. To be honest, I didn't fully get it at the time. Maybe I was expecting him to say, well, no, it's to learn Greek or to learn Hebrew. This was 17 years ago. I remember I kind of nodded and still not fully grasping it. But frankly, as the years have gone on and I've seen the cares of life increase and life has gotten harder, in many ways it's gotten heavier, I can see that he was exactly right. It reminds me of something that I read. This was written by one of Billy Graham's grandsons, who's a pastor now, an article called Trusting in God's Declaration. He said, God does not move us beyond the gospel. He moves us more deeply into the gospel. Because all of the power we need in order to change and mature comes through the gospel. The gospel does not simply ignite the Christian life. It is the fuel that keeps Christians going and growing every day. Real change cannot come apart from the gospel. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, it's not just a message that we believe when we first hear it and then move beyond it's a message that we move more deeply into. What I want to talk about this morning then is what is the power of the gospel? What is the power of the gospel? The text I want to look at comes from John chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 36. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 36. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. 
to these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and had hid himself from them. You may be seated. We're progressing every Sunday through the gospel of John. It was written so that we may believe, so that we could put our faith in Christ. To know why we're putting our faith in Christ. The book itself explains why it was written in John chapter 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The gospel gets more important to me every day. And this morning I want to talk about four things the gospel does daily. The gospel is not simply something to believe once and then, okay, we move on to the next thing. It is something, as I said in the beginning, that we are driven more deeply into, and it becomes essential in our daily living. So, first of all, let me just simply state this. I keep using the word, the gospel, just to make sure we're all on the same page. What is the gospel? Well, the word literally means good news. And you could define it this way. I think we can... It's not clicking. Is it clicking behind me? This way. The good news is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. So this power of the gospel is continually working in our lives. And here in this narrative, John, we're seeing it breaking out. So what all does it do? Well, first of all, we see that it, it breaks barriers. It breaks barriers. The scene is set. The entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was 
met with proclamations as the son of David. But now he's more broadly identifying himself. He's not just saying, I'm the son of David. He's calling himself the son of man. Not just of a Jewish lineage, but a human lineage. And now we have these Greeks who have taken interest in Judaism. They've worshipped God with the Jews. There was a place in the temple for them to do that. As a matter of fact, they're standing against the Pharisees that are looking to kill Jesus. Many of those fickle Jews were looking for a national Savior, not an eternal Savior. And these were God-fearing Gentiles, non-Jewish folk, these Greeks, may or may not have been converts to Judaism, but they're participating in everything. They're there. And now they approach Philip, probably because he has a Greek name. They want to meet Jesus. And we're seeing this interest outside of God's chosen people. Christ had made it clear his mission first was to the Jews. However, those outside of Judaism are now taking a very stark interest in what Jesus is doing. Now, the Greeks were known to be truth seekers. You've probably heard of Socrates and Plato and some of these great philosophers. They were known to want to seek and find the truth. And now Jesus is going to address their request. We see in verse 23, Jesus said to the disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about his death and his burial and his resurrection. Not just his resurrection, but all of those events. And there was tension between these these Greeks and these Jews. We see at the very beginning of the church, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, the church is in its very earliest states. And it says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that would have been the, 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 the Greek speakers, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There was conflict between Greeks and Jews, even Greek speakers and Hebrew speakers. Outside tensions between these groups made its way into the church. So this work of Christ will be for the birth of a new program. Initially he came to the Jews, but now his ministry is widening. And it forces me to ask the question, what would it look like for us to embrace the same kind of widening ministry of Jesus? Is there a signal here for us too that to embrace that wider mission also means to incur risk? taking up the cross, walking down the same path of Jesus. You heard the country that our missionaries are ministering in. It's in the Middle East. That does not come without incurring some risk. Why is it that a country is so afraid that the gospel be shared on their land? We're walking down the same path of Christ. Is this what Jesus has in mind when he follows the story of the Greeks asking questions with an exhortation about discipleship that leads to self-sacrifice? Because to get the message out, if we are truly going to embrace all people, it will not come without a cost. Probably at a very minimum, a cost of what we would deem to be acceptable to who we would let in the doors of our church. Whatever barriers and tribes and social groups exist outside the gathering of believers, 
Jesus broke down all those barriers. See, if we were just a gathering of like-minded people on something other than the gospel, we'd have to take the name church off the sign. We'd be something else. We'd be a social interest group. This is what Christ meant down in verse 32 when he said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's not saying that everybody's going to be saved. He's saying that now there is no distinction among persons about who will be drawn to myself. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, the ground is level around the cross. So the gospel breaks down normal social barriers, racial, socioeconomic, political, and it also gives purpose. That's number two. It also gives purpose. He proceeds in verse 24 to talk about what happens when a, a kernel falls to the ground. And he talks about it must die. And the only way it can be productive is to die. Only then can it produce a great harvest. Now he's talking about his own body. His body must die. It must go into the ground. And he too would produce a great harvest. And it's important to point out that the glory here is not just the resurrection. But the glory of Christ is also the shame he's willing to endure as he is nailed on that cross. As he puts up with the jeers, the crown of thorns, the betrayal and the torture. One commentator, Carson, puts it this way. It's not just that the shame of the cross is inevitably followed by the glory of the exaltation, but that the glory is already fully displayed in the shame. It was a shame to be crucified. That was reserved for the worst of the criminals, the murderers. And Jesus would drag that cross all around. He'll lovingly and willfully subject himself to the coming torture and humiliation. And that is part of the glory. And not only his life, he'll expand this out to the lives of his disciples as well. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, what in the world? I, what in the world is he saying here? These two important statements. First of all, if you love your life, you'll lose it? I mean, what does that mean? Uh, isn't loving life important? This is not a new principle, by the way, in the sense that Jesus had he, he taught it elsewhere in the Gospels. But in essence, it means that if you choose to selfishly live life for yourself, you'll waste it. Nothing good will come of it. Then there's that second part of the verse, whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That is to say, this is talking about a person who refuses to pander to their own self-interests. This goes back to something we talked about last week. We talked about one of the old church fathers, Augustine of Hippo. He talked about having disordered loves. And he said, if you put love for your life at the top of your list, in other words, I'm going to live for the love of this life, he says, you will be anxious and terrified your whole life because you'll be so afraid you're going to lose it that you'll desperately try to hang on to it. That turns into self-idolatry. He said, if you want to truly love your life, put Christ at the top of the list. Someone you can never lose. We're back to making Jesus look like us when we put our lives at the top of the list. It turns into self-idolatry. So what does being a life hater look like? Well, this is what you got to do. This is, 
this is kind of how I get my mind around this. Imagine the person that you know who takes much less interest in themselves than they take in other people. I, I mean, they take much less interest in themselves than they would take in someone else. In other words, when you're with that person, they're always asking you questions. They're not talking about themselves. And they always kind of seem to be available. You know, they're kind of around. They're sort of like there. They're one of those people we used to say they just show up. They discipline themselves to resist the desire to make themselves their chief focus. That disinterest in yourself is dying to yourself. And this verse is saying that is the key to life. What happens to that person says they gain eternal life. A believer should undergo a spiritual death to self. And Jesus is saying if you give your life to me, you'll be missing out on absolutely nothing. And through the centuries, we've seen Christian martyrs literally die for the church. And that death has often been linked to the salvation of countless other people. As a matter of fact, what gives so much credence to the testimony of those whom God had chosen, those very early disciples, was their willingness to die for the message. If they thought it to be some kind of hoax or some kind of lie, they would have had firsthand knowledge of it. And yet they're willing to go to their deaths. Beyond that even, it doesn't mean that we'll all have to literally die. Disciples who haven't been martyred have discovered that any sacrifice for Christ can produce blessing for others and for them that will outweigh the sacrifice. And I'm not talking about a blessing in terms of health and wealth. That doesn't apply to practically any single Christian who did anything of note did not lead a healthy, wealthy life. They often died young. They were often very, very poor. However, this is about Christian growth, which is far more valuable than any physical possession you could ever have. Christ has more to say about this person. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must Follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the true servant who puts Jesus first. A true servant will stay close to the master, obedient to him. Jesus is saying this while he's on his way to the cross. That's the way of the disciple. Death figuratively, if not literally. Then he moves on facing the cross. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified, and I will glorify it again. I think the beginning of verse 27 is one of his most human expressions. Something that if your heart is troubled this morning, and I know that probably most of your hearts are troubled this morning, this is something you can cling to. It's his trouble. It's, it's, it's that word trouble is the same word used to, to describe the disciples when they're, they're terrified seeing Jesus walk on the water. It's the same Greek word. 
It's also used to describe water that's been stirred up and is churning, is deeply troubled and wonders. Jesus is deeply troubled. He wonders what he should say. Father, save me from this hour. No. This is why I'm here. This is the Father's purpose for me. Father, glorify your name. And here we see the anguish and the obedience of Christ is similar to that moment in Gethsemane. In Mark 14, he'll say, take this cup from me, which is followed with a word of obedience, yet not what I will, but your will be done. Jesus had a desire to avoid the cross, but at the same time, he has a greater desire to completely obey the Father. And this is probably one of the most instructive moments for me in the Bible, that subjecting our will to the will of God can be an emotionally painful experience. I read about a pastor who, uh, he said he saw a young man that got this. He was doing a counseling session for this young couple. And on the last session, the boy, the young man spoke up and said, I just have to say I'm so scared of this. Well, he's being honest, isn't he? And then he saw his fiance get kind of flustered. What do you mean you're so scared of this? I, you know, we're, we're practically to the wedding now. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I'm not, it's not that I'm afraid of being married to you. He said, I'm afraid of losing you. He said, when my mother died, the grief was overwhelming, and I love you even more. I don't know if I can even survive if something were to happen to you. Then he looked at the pastor. What is, those moments for pastors are terrifying. When you, you know, they want an answer. The pastor said he could tell from his pleading eyes that he wanted some reassurance to, you know, to tell them that they were young and they were healthy. They don't need to worry about, about dying. But he said, I, I couldn't do that because he said he's buried too many young people. And he proceeded to say this to the young man, the, young man, the couple. In my experience, he said, 100% of all marriages come to an end. Some tragically through divorce or early death. Some will last over 60 years. If your marriage is long and filled with intimacy, then when death comes, you're going to be even more in love than you are now. It's going to hurt even more than to have to say goodbye when the time finally comes. And he said, and that's the best scenario that you've got. So why do you want to go through marriage, wondering if this is the day you'll lose your beloved? He said, give her up today. Get the grieving over with. Die to your right to have her, die to your fear of losing her, and die to the myth that you can keep her. Until you do, you'll be too afraid to enjoy her. He said it wasn't what he wanted to hear, but he said that was the best I could offer. See, until we understand the reality of the world we're in, we can never truly enjoy what we have. The best family meal that you've ever been in, sitting around that table, enjoying the moment. At some time in the future, someone at that table is going to have to watch every other person die. Boy, Chad, we're really glad we came this morning. You're just full of <laughs> good news. And... But see, that's also the key to enjoying it. Because when you can hang on to those things loosely here on this earth and let go of the myth that you're always going to have it, then you'll also let go of the fear that you're going to lose it. 
It's only in dying that we can finally live. Because the terrifying truth of the cross even speaks to marriage. So we gain purpose in the gospel. We, we see that death itself, it, it helps us love others and enjoy others in life more. And as we submit to the reality that all of this is temporary, and it's all just a sample of what's to come in heaven. So the gospel brings purpose and meaning. It breaks barriers, it gives purpose, and then it also brings joy. It brings joy. So God responds audibly to Jesus' request, and the crowd hears different things. And some believe an angel had spoken. Some thought they'd heard thunder, and, and probably most didn't understand that it signaled something very important at that time. It was for their sake. It was another affirmation of who Jesus was in 31 and 32 uh, of chapter 12, it says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is Christ speaking there, verse 31. And notice it says, Now. Uh, it's connected to the crucifixion. Many of these Jews think they're going to be judging Jesus, but in fact, Jesus says, No, the crucifixion is going to reveal so much about you. It's also going to cast down the ruler of this world. This is a reference to Satan. The death of Jesus may seem like a triumph for Satan, but it's not. It's actually a signal of his defeat. If you look forward in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, it's going to explain that by the blood of the Lamb, Satan, the accuser, has been thrown down. Because, see, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins, but Satan does something very different. He wants to continually accuse you of things that you've already done in the past. And he wants to confound you by past sins. Ultimately, what Satan seeks to do is to get you so tore up about stuff you've done in the past that it'll make you doubt your salvation right now. Oh, look how sad you are. You can't be a Christian. Look how anguished you are. You can't be a Christian. But see, and I hope you've seen this passage, sadness and grief are normal to the Christian experience. And one of the reasons I love this passage is because Jesus admits his soul's troubled. And now Satan can't accuse us of our sins anymore because Jesus paid for our sins. He's only still working in this world because God has permitted it. Find joyful rest in that. And finally, the gospel guides us. It guides us. We see at the end the crowd is confused. He'll be lifted up. Somehow they were able to connect his being lifted up with him dying. However, they had a, a hope that he was going to establish his kingdom right then and there. So how can it be that Jesus is dying? And he confronts them in verses 35 and 36. They think they have an intellectual problem, but Jesus says, no, you've got a moral problem. You're walking in darkness. Believe what I'm telling you and you'll be a child of light. Be one of his disciples. So Christ comes as a light to show us what pathways are dark? Don't walk in those. Trust the guidance of the scriptures, daily guidance, even though we don't have all the answers. You know, whenever I used to drive from, I used to live in West Virginia and I worked in Maryland. I'd make that trip a lot. And you had to drive over Afton Mountain between West Virginia and Maryland. And on the top of Afton Mountain, especially if it was night, you were, could count on getting caught in a very thick cloud bank. So they put these really pronounced reflectors in the road. And usually it would get so bad that the only thing you could see with your high beams on was that next reflector. And you had to make your way from that light to the next light to the next light to the next light. See, that's how God guides us. 
He gives us enough light just for the next step. He gives us enough light for today. And that can make us confident of God's guidance. i got to let go of the need to see his complete plan. Jesus gave us the good news of the gospel. That by putting your faith in him, who he is, his death and resurrection, will not only forgive you for your sins today, but the day after that, and the day after that, until you ultimately go and you're with him for all eternity. So putting all this together, find power for life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Find power for life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a, very quickly, there was an essay that came out called The Quiet But Deep Influence of Jesus' Life. Much of what we experience in our Western civilization is the direct result of the work of Christ. Putting value in, in children was because Christ said, let the children come to me. Jesus never married, but his treatment of women led to the formation of a community that was so friendly to women they would join it in record numbers. Jesus never wrote a book, but it was Christians during the dark ages that maintained teaching and preserving what was left of learning. The Roman Empire was ex ex excruciatingly cruel. But one teacher said, whatever you did for the least of one of these, you do for me. Humility was frowned on in the ancient world. Enemies uh, who were thought to be worthy of vengeance were thought to be worthy of love. But because of what Christ did, forgiveness moved from weakness to an act of moral beauty. The practice of burial in graveyards or cemeteries was taken from the followers of Christ and expressed the hope of resurrection. See, death did not end Jesus' influence. And in many ways, it just started it. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your, your willingness to go to your own death and the hope that that brings us. We're thankful that we can lay all of our sins on you, that you took those sins, you put them on yourself, Lord Jesus. And we can rest joyfully in what you have done on our behalf. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who's unsure of where their eternal dwelling will be, I pray this day will not go by until they get the answers to their questions. Thank you for your resurrection that gives us hope that we too will be resurrected. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.